when I say the word trials, what comes to your mind? Like, no, right? Not now. I've already in one. I don't need another one. Uh, trials, I think, are some of the most perplexing and painful experiences in our life. I mean, they are a source of great difficulty, and oftentimes we don't understand why. Like, what is the purpose of our trials? And how can we truly live and grow through these trials? And, you know, if you and I can't answer the question, why trials? What is God trying to accomplish? How do we get through them? What happens is life gets rather bitter and cold. We rather we grow pretty isolated. We get pretty jaded. I can tell you just from my own personal experience that if I do not look closely at James chapter 1, all the times that I've either forgot or failed to look at it from what God reveals in his word, they've made for rather painful, difficult experiences. And I know that every single person in this room goes through trials. In fact, some of you are in the midst of like a major one at the moment. How? How do you truly live? What is the purpose in this? Why does the creator of the universe allow or even put us through trials? Well, God wants us to know with certainty that there is meaning in the midst of our trials and our tribulations. That's why he has had James. He's the half-brother of Jesus, a seasoned pastor, kind of a leader of the church in Jerusalem, writing the very first New Testament letter. That's why he addresses trials at the very front. If you and I miss this, we're going to miss a major part of what God is going to do, is trying to do in our life, and we're not going to understand the trials and the tribulations that we are in. The book theme of the book of James is two words, maturity matters. And in James chapter 1, you're going to see the mindset of a maturing faith in Christ. So what is the purpose of our trials? Well, let's take a look. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how James positions himself as Christ's servant, as a servant of God. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result in you, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He begins in verse 2 saying, consider. This word literally means lead. It's to lead your mind. Once again, you see how the New Testament emphasizes that you are proactive in your faith, that you engage your mind. It's not passive. And so he says, I want you to lead your mind. Think, consider it all joy, my brethren, these fellow family members in Christ, when you encounter various trials. It's not that it's pleasant going through trials. Oftentimes it's not. But there can be joy when you consider not only what God is doing in the midst of the trials, but what he is accomplishing through them, the end product. And we're going to talk about that. But please note this. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's not if you encounter various trials. It's when. You need to know this. You are either presently in a trial, you are just getting through one, or you're just about ready to step into one. Not trying to discourage you or anything, but life is filled with trials. 
God provides trials, and there is a reason for that. So what is that? He's going to actually tell us. Trials, by the way, come in all sorts of shapes and forms. It connotes, uh, connotes trouble. There is a, something that breaks the pattern of peace or comfort or joy or happiness. And trials are not like a one-time thing. So it's not like, you remember in third grade where your teacher put the word dessert and desert on the same spelling test? And you're like, I can never remember how many S's. And you know, like, and it was like, that was my one trial and I'm done. By the way, it's like two S's for dessert because you always want more dessert. Just helping you out. All right, that's how you get through it. I got it wrong, but I learned. Okay, so you're going to go through trials. It's not kind of a one-time event. And it's interesting, the Greek word for trial and temptation is the exact same word, parasmos. It, it depends on how you and I respond to it. If we respond correctly, it's designed to strengthen us. If we respond to the trial or the temptation incorrectly, it's like to have all sorts of, of difficult, painful experiences in our life. And they're various. Affliction. Disease, sorrow, illness, failure, leadership challenges, the weight of responsibility, persecution. It shows up there can be mental, relational, emotional, spiritual, moral. There are all sorts of challenges, all sorts of trials that you and I face. Whether it be a loss of job, divorce, breakdown of family, wayward child, things that aren't working right. They can be small, they can be super significant, like a loved one. That has passed away. So, what do we do? Paul, uh, James says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter these various trials. If you became a Christian, you thought, Man, once I trust Jesus, I will never have a trial again. Why, you have been sorely mistaken, haven't you? You've been disappointed. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you're not going to have trials anymore. It means that you're going to have a purpose and a meaning and one that will walk through them with you. And so he says, consider it all joy. Philip Yancey really helps us out in understanding this. He writes this, by those words, consider it all joy, the apostles did not intend a grin and bear it or act tough like nothing happened attitude. No trace of those attitudes can be found in Christ's response to suffering or in Paul, nor is there any masochistic hint of enjoying the pain? Rejoicing in suffering does not mean Christians should act happy about tragedy and pain when they feel like crying. Such a view distorts honesty and true expression of feelings. Christianity is not phony. So it's not like, oh, I lost my job. Praise the Lord, this is wonderful. Or mom's in the hospital. Isn't that just great? It's not like that. God doesn't want you superficial. He wants you real. By the way, the watching world wants to see reality. So we weep with those who weep. With those who weep. When we experience sadness and difficulty, there's pain. But he wants us to know that we can have joy in the midst of trials. Yancey goes on to write, The Bible's spotlight is on the end result. And this is so important. The use God can make of suffering in our lives. Before he can produce that result, however, he first needs our commitment of trust in him, and the process of giving him that commitment can be described as rejoicing. Faith that indeed he is good 
despite how bad we feel. So what the believer does is you've got to look past the immediate unpleasantness of your situation. What he's calling for is a long-term perspective. What God is accomplishing through this and what is the end goal. So let's take a look at this. He says, verse 3, we can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This was used to, like this word testing of coins, to prove that they were genuine. And that's what trials do. They show that we actually have a genuine faith in Christ. We hold on even when it looks like the world is coming apart, or we've got great pain or real difficulty. It is the testing of your faith produces endurance, that we keep holding on. It's kind of like a distance runner. And if you've ever been involved in distance running, what happens is when you're running a long race for an extended period of time, your body just starts breaking down. And there is this urge to just kind of like start flailing your arms or just stopping altogether. But the distance runner knows that in order to complete the race and complete it well, you've got to hold form. You can't allow your arms to do this. You've got to hold form. And by doing so, this endurance, you actually go through it. It's, it's perseverance. And William Barclay points out it's the endurance of Christians that left their mark on a watching and wayward world. William Barclay writes this. He points out that the endurance of the early Christians was not a passive quality. It is not simply the ability to bear things. It's the ability to turn them to greatness and glory. The thing which amazed the heathen in the centuries of persecution was that the martyrs did not die grimly. They died singing. Because why? They're finding their joy in Christ. So what we're realizing is that this testing of our faith, as we go through our trials, it's producing endurance. It's making us stronger. We keep holding on to Jesus. It, this, by the way, it can't be attained by reading a book or you even just listening to this sermon. Endurance is produced by actually going through the trial. And so he says, it's not a tooth-clenched kind of like resignation but it's a rather, it's long obedience in the same direction. It is holding on to Jesus. And so every time you and I go through trials, yeah, we're, we want to pray that you get well. Pray that the job comes. Pray that you get the resources that you need. Pray that this relationship will smooth over. Pray that you'll be able to willing to love and forgive. But the most important thing that we need to be praying for and encouraging one another is that you're holding on to Jesus in all of this. That you're staying focused on Christ. Because why? Verse 4. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is the purpose in our trials? Verse 4. God is developing maturity. You see that word perfect? That's that Greek word teleos that we keep seeing time and time again. It means fully mature. That's what God is trying to do in trials. That we learn more about the strength of the character of Christ. That we exercise greater love. That we have greater fortitude. That we're trusting him more. That we are willing to forgive. That we have fortitude of soul. And that you, that you are complete. Meaning that all the pieces have come together. That you are whole. And that you are lacking in nothing. And that's what God is doing. He 
He wants to bring about maturity in Christ, that we look like Jesus, and how he does it, he does it through trials. But of course, you have to understand the purpose of trials if that's ever going to happen. And that's why it's so powerful that the New Testament really begins by saying, consider it all joy. Look at the end product. Maturity. There's a dependence upon God. There's a depth of understanding. You need to understand that the trials that you're going through, God may very well use as ministry in the lives of other people. That is kind of how it works. You go through a difficult experience, but you learn about the resources and the riches that we have in Christ, and then you meet someone that's also going through it. Or just starting through some of these initial stages, you can speak from the voice of experience. Hey, let me talk to you about trusting God and what this looks like going through this. Whether it be grief, whether it be relationship breakdown, dealing with a wayward child, dealing with job loss, whatever it might be, God uses our experiences for ministry. And furthermore, we learn what it means to be dedicated to the church. If you don't understand the purpose of trial, what happens is you have a tendency to move into isolation. It's very dangerous. It's like what Satan, Satan's great tool. Hey, you're struggling? You have difficulty? What you need to do is isolate from the Christians. And that happens, doesn't it? I mean, if you don't see your neighbors and your friends at church, don't be like, whoa, they must be on a six-month vacation or whatever. I doubt it. You are aware of their trouble, or maybe you're not. You ought to contact them. Because, after all, God is at work in this process of bringing about maturity. But if you don't handle it right, or you forget about these verses, all sorts of difficulties happen in our life. You see, the journey to maturity comes through growing through trials. But it's keeping the end goal in mind. It's joy because God's bringing about maturity. Think of Jesus. You remember what it said about Jesus, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? He says, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Because he was for the joy set before him. Do you remember that? Because of the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. And when we think about the cross, we oftentimes think about the physical anguish. And it would be horrific. But it would pale in comparison to the spiritual anguish when he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf and God literally pours out his just wrath upon Christ and he pays the penalty for the sin of humanity. Far grievous. And why did Jesus go through this? The perfect Lamb of God. Because of the joy set before him. He understood by the giving of his perfect life, he would redeem a lost humanity, and that everyone who had the faith of Abraham, that took God at his word and believed, would be united with him and experience eternity. They would know the gifts of redemption and what forgiveness looks like and the greatness of Christ and what true worship looked like. And so it's that joy, the eternal joy, and that's why Jesus went through it. That's the perspective, friends. You see, the purpose of trials is to bring us to maturity in Christ. So how do we go through it? How do we truly live and grow through trials? Well, let's take a look. He actually tells us in these very next verses. Verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Isn't it interesting? Right after he talks about the purpose of trials... He 
then says that you lack wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is skill for living. Where you and I apply God's truth to our life. That we live well. And so you and I, we need wisdom. We need understanding. Why am I going through this trial? What am I supposed to learn? How am I supposed to grow? God says, I give wisdom. And notice what he said in verse 5. He gives to all generously. Uh, this word literally means to stretch out. It's like the picture of like God stretching out his arms and providing a banquet table of wisdom. Kind of like the Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom is calling out, come and eat at my table. And that's what God is saying. I will give you what you need. I will give you peace. I will give you hope. I will give you strength, perseverance. I'll give you the ability to love, the ability to forgive, forgive, the ability to hope and move forward. But you must come to me. I'm generous. It's right there. Isn't it interesting? When we go through trials, sometimes going to God is like the last place we go. We're going to go to our friends. We're going to, we're going to eat a lot of food. We're going to stress eat. We're going to do some uh, shopping therapy, right? We're going, to, we're going to think like that's going to help. And I'm not saying some of these things are wrong. What I'm saying is you're missing help. Help is found in the Lord. He gives to all, all who ask wisdom. He gives generously. And notice, without reproach. This is so powerful. Uh, there's no invective, no harm, no insult. And I think that James wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit without reproach because we need it. Oftentimes in trials, we behave poorly. And I'm not just speaking from personal experience, although I know what that looks like, not handling a trial well. I imagine we all have been there. And there's kind of like a shame that says, like, I should have done better, I should have known better. And so I'm not, I'm going to avoid God. We kind of go in the avoidance, isolation mode. What God wants you to know is like, without reproach, I'm generous. I forgive. I beckon you. Come to me. I'm going to give you wisdom. I'll give you what you need. There, I'm not holding anything over you. And so he says, verse 6, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. You see, when you go through trials, you and I need wisdom, and God says, I want you to ask by faith. That has the idea that you've got a confident trust that God is sovereign and that he's good, that you are literally taking him at his word. He says, not doubting, not just kind of the temporal doubts. I mean, every once in a while, we all have doubts like, oh, how could God be faithful in this situation? But you get back on track pretty quickly. The kind of doubt that he's talking about here is the kind of doubt that puts you like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. It's the doubt that it's a pretty significant, like, yeah, I see evidence of God. I mean, how can you look at the universe or a planet or a plant and not actually come to the conclusion that there is a divine creator? But I don't think he cares. I don't think he's faithful. I don't think that he can really help. And so I'm going to give up. That kind of doubt will put you like the surf of the sea. You're going to be like a little cork in a raging sea, kind of like the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, it's uh, about 15 miles long. It's actually a lake, seven miles wide. And it's kind of surrounded by mountains. And the wind, at just almost like a moment's notice, can come rushing down and turn that little lake and just kind of like toss it all over. It's just, you've got waves going everywhere. If you're on your little boat, 
the little Michael row your boat to shore. That's probably where it came from. Here comes the storm. You better get to the shore real quick because otherwise you're going to be like this bobber going everywhere. Friends, that's what it looks like when you doubt God. You are all over the map. Maybe this described to you last night or last week. No, he says, don't doubt. Come with the confidence that God is able, that he is accomplishing his purposes. He says, verse 7, for the man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, being unstable in all his ways. God literally doesn't want us to be two-souled. Kind of like, well, I believe God here like Sunday morning. You know what? Reading this text and reading all these believers, yeah, I'm going to trust God. But four hours later, you've given up. No. Consistent. I'm going to hold on to Jesus. Keep on believing. The greatest enemy to answered prayer is unbelief. I think a lot about this of Peter walking to Jesus on the water. Remember it was a storm, and they thought Jesus was approaching, and remember Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Remember that? Matthew chapter 14? Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Come, have me do the impossible. Walk on the water in the midst of the storm. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat. Wow, what faith. And he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Man, can you imagine? Literally, out of the boat, and he's walking on the water, but he's focused on Jesus, and he's doing just fine when he's focused on Jesus. But the very next verse, but seeing the wind, and he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And that's kind of like us. We go through our metaphorical storms. Friends, just keep focused on Jesus. He is bringing about maturity. But when you get focused on your circumstances, and it's so easy to do, I know, I've been there, you're like, oh, you start sinking, right? This wind, these waves, it's, no one should be able to go through this. So focus on Jesus not on your circumstances. That's why, like Paul would write in Philippians like 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I'll say rejoice. You don't find your joy in your circumstances, because frankly, oftentimes our circumstances are unpleasant and difficult. We find our joy in Christ. That's why we keep encouraging one another, we keep encouraging our souls, fix your eyes upon Jesus. And so when you're troubled, ask God for wisdom. He's going to give it to you generously. So how do you truly live and grow through our trials? Let me just give this to you. First, identify how you feel. Identify like you feel discouraged, hurt, hopeless, you're angry. And you can you can either speak it out or write it. But then the second is talk with God about it. Talk with God. Ask him for faith. Ask him for wisdom. Ask him for the ability to persevere. But God wants you to commune with him as you go through these trials. If you're not praying as you're going through your trials, you're going to miss not only the peace of God, but oftentimes the purpose of why you're in the trial in the first place. He's getting you to trust him. What will it take? Ask wisdom. He's going to give generously. 
there's there's no reproach with him he wants to come so you start talking with god and then you follow his word in his strength what does god say god says that i'm trying to build stability in your life i'm making you stronger i'm giving you the ability to forgive i want you to manifest maturity i want you to love the difficult that's what god is accomplishing through our trials so with that being said well then consider your reaction to your trials and that's what he does in verse 9 he kind of gives two examples of trials and people going through them he says verse 9 but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position so you've been humbled you don't have much you need to understand if you have very few resources you have no advocate you feel marginalized in society you have humble circumstances you need to know that if you're trusting in christ you're a child of the king you have a high position and he says and the rich man is the glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away so if you are rich meaning like if you have a change of clothes if you have a place that you live in and it's not a lean-to it's an apartment a condominium a house you're rich if you are rich you need to glory in your please don't miss this your humiliation that you are humbled before god that you recognize that everything you have has really been entrusted to you for a short time that you are humble humble before god and you seek to honor christ and I, the reason he emphasizes this is because wealth is an alluring God. It is an idol. And what happens is we have a tendency to trust in our wealth, in our own resources, and not in God. And friends, that's where we're getting in trouble. And so he says, if you're wealthy, if you're rich, you're to glory in your humiliation because you know what? All of your wealth, it's like flowering grass. It just kind of passes away. And then in contrast to this, this humility, both with the poor person and the rich person, they're humble before God, verse 11. For the sun rises in a scorching wind and, and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And this is kind of our American culture. It's all about the resources that you've got. God excluded you need to understand it's kind of like flowers and he's he's bringing to mind wildflowers of israel and like about, about february they kind of come up and that's actually a picture of what they kind of look like and it's beautiful but by may when the sirocco winds come in they just kind of fry those flowers it's kind of like living here in waco you know you get this nice little plant at the garden store you put it out on your patio it's a nice summer day in waco and you look at it the next day and it's dead right what happened it was just outside right that's what happens. Friends, your wealth, all these material things that you're trusting in, they're all going to go away. It's just going to be gone. God wants you trusting in him who is eternal. He is building your confidence in your character in Christ. And so he says, what you want to do is you want to be focused upon him. And then he tells us in verse 12, look at the conclusion. Look at the reward of your trials, of going through them. He ends with a beatitude. Blessed is a man 
who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, literally means passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's the crown, which is life. You see, God gives eternal life, unending life, and it's an abundant life that's in Christ eternally as when we go through the trials of this life. It's the reward. But notice, it's to those who, and I, I don't want you to miss this, verse 12, at the very end, I've got it underlined, to those who love him. Friends, that is the secret of going through trials well. Loving him. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we gather for worship. It rekindles a love for God, for it's a love for God that allows us to keep trusting him and going through these trials well. And so that's how it works. This crown of life would speak of like a victor's crown, a wreath that they put on these Greek athletes for winning. What God does is he graces our, graces our life with the crown of life, eternal life, life with God, life with him forever. No pain, no tears, joy in Christ, unending awe. It's like you finished the race and you won. It's such an elation to win. And to imagine that, the, that Jesus himself crowns you with life, life eternal. But friends, how this goes is first the cross, then the crown. First the race. And the race can be extremely hard at times. Then the victory. First the suffering. Then the glory. And that's what we do. So we focus on Christ. You know what? Christ actually um, transforms us through trials. All throughout the Bible, you have pictures of this. Like, for instance, remember Abraham for 25 years, he's believing God's promise that he's going to have a child, but like time's running out for him and his wife. But you know what? They eventually did have a child. And all of that was preparation for future ministry. You remember Joseph? For 13 years, he had been sold into slavery, and then he had also been made a prisoner. But did you know that those significant trials, can you imagine prison? And, and some of you have actually been in prison, so you don't have to imagine how difficult that is. Being sold as a slave, none of us here know that. How difficult that would be. And yet, all of those experiences were preparation for God to use Joseph, not to save just an Egyptian empire, but all the people around. He uses the difficult. He shapes, molds, fashions us, and he uses us for his purposes. Or, you know, uh, Moses. Okay, so 40 years, he goes up, kind of with the Egyptians. Things are really cool. He's up for crust. He's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, we have a little incident. Uh, he gets carried away. He kills a guy. He's on the run for 40 years. He lives in the desert. Do you know for 40 years, you know what uh, Moses did? Talk about a serious trial. His job was to keep his father-in-law's sheep alive in the desert. Okay? No grass, no water. Just don't lose any. You know, that's a serious trial, right? But all of this was preparation. Going through these trials, trusting God for a day that he would lead the people of Israel in that exact same desert to the promised land. That's what God's doing. Don't miss the triumph and the trials. God is at work. It's kind of like clay. And God takes this lump of clay, a, a person, humanity, and he shapes it and it molds and the spinning wheel is spinning and the clay doesn't have any idea what's happening and it seems painful and there's divots and curves and depths that's being brought about, but 
God is fashioning a vessel fit for his honorable use. That's what he's doing with our trials. How does Christianity answer the problem of suffering? By taking a long-term, Christ-centered, eternal perspective. You and I, our life is but a dot on the eternal line. So don't focus on the dot. Focus on the eternal line. The best is yet to come. So friends, the choice is yours. Bitter or better? Bitter or better? What will it be for you as you and I go through our trials? You know, if you've, uh, you're going through a trial or you've been through some trials and, and you, you've behaved poorly, you've even sinned in the midst of them, just confess your sin to God. He wants you to experience his wisdom and his grace. But God intends to take the bitter and make it beautiful. I don't fully understand how this will work, but somehow all the knots in the tapestry of this life are going to get flipped over when we're in eternity, and we're going to see the beauty that God created in the midst of the trials of this life. And that doesn't mean that God's going to change your circumstances, by the way, when you ask for wisdom. Remember Paul? Uh, he writes about his experiences in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he had this, remember there was this thorn in his flesh, this messenger from Satan, the word is angelos, okay? You need to be kind of like an angelic messenger or a human messenger. And this thorn in his flesh, this messenger from Satan, was likely people or a particular person who just made his life miserable. You probably had someone like that, right? And he asked God three times, would you remove this from me? Because this trial, I can't bear anymore. These people are killing me. But listen to what God said to him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected. There's our Greek word teleos again. Made fully mature in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That's what happens. We're broken. We're hurt. We're calling out to God for wisdom. And God manifests the power of Christ through his grace in our lives. And friends, this didn't happen even as a young kid. There's a woman by the name of Fanny Crosby, and she's, she's, she's blind. At eight years old, she wrote this verse. Listen to these lines. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, and I won't. See, the journey to maturity, it comes through growing through trials. John Piper in his book, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, writes these thoughts about God. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, the journey to maturity comes through growing through trials. And life is full of them. And when you're in the midst, you don't have to feel like, oh, I, 
I just have to act morose and sorrowful when I'm in them. Actually, you can have and experience the joy of Christ even in the difficult days that we go through. Singer, songwriter, and author Jennifer Rothschild shares her story uh, about she became permanently blind to a disease where her retinas deteriorated. And I want to, you to hear what she wrote. One of the hardest lessons I've had to learn is that God uses painful circumstances in our lives for good. My hero, Johnny Erickson Tana, who has been in a wheelchair since she was a teenager, makes this point well when she says that God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Isn't that powerful? God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves, like maturity in Christ in the midst of our trials. And so Jennifer goes on to write, I am convinced that God's grace has sustained me. If healing were sufficient, God would have provided it. If deliverance were sufficient, God would have delivered me. But he's allowed me to live with blindness, yet live equally with the sufficiency of his grace. And that grace shows up in different ways on different days. But in whatever way it shows up, it has always been truly sufficient. I'm looking then at these words. It may never be well in our circumstances, but through God's grace, it can always be well with our souls. And so it can. The journey to maturity comes through growing through trials. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing, fascinating passage of Scripture. Had you not revealed what you're seeking to accomplish in trials and how we go through them and go through them well, God, we would be really lost. Life would be very painful. We would lose perspective and hope. But God, because of Jesus and because of your word, we can see. And we ask for strength and we ask for wisdom. And God, we need perseverance. And you know we can't do this on our own. So Lord, we call out to you. And for the person who has come here today who's never truly trusted in Jesus, and their life right now seems like a giant trial, cataclysmic, no hope, would they simply pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin, and I trust in Jesus, the forgiver of sins, and the one who gives life and hope, meaning and purpose. Today, Lord, I trust in you. God, may this be our life. For your glory, in Jesus' name.